There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Nick Stefanisi is our guest this week. Nick is the CEO of Northwell Direct. Northwell Direct is the for-profit B2B direct-to-employer arm of Northwell Health, which is New York State's largest nonprofit healthcare provider and private employer, where he is responsible for the strategy, operations, growth, and financial performance of Northwell Health's direct-to-employer organization. Before joining Northwell Direct, he served as Chief Administrative Officer and Interim CEO of Formative Health a for-profit joint venture aimed at enhancing the patient and provider experience of and access to healthcare. Started in 2016, Formative grew to more than 450 employees, 1,200 providers served, and over 2 million patients contacted annually. His current role represents a return to the Northwell Health family. He spent eight years in various roles at Northwell Health prior to his time as CEO of Northwell Direct before he joined Formative. Nick earned a Bachelor of Arts in International Relations from Boston University his MBA in Healthcare Administration from Hofstra University. Nick Stefanisi, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. That is some uh, tenure there in the profession, which we'll get to shortly. So just, you know, thank you for all that you do. I'm very excited to have you as a guest today because of your work on the mental wellness collaboration between Northwell Direct and the New York City Police Department called Finest Care that was launched last July. Tell us a little bit about Finest Care, please. Yeah, and I'm really appreciative that you're highlighting not only the work we're doing through the Finest Care program, um, but the issue of uh, behavioral health and mental well-being in general. I think it's such an important topic as we think about, you know, what the priorities are within our healthcare system, uh, really shedding a light on the behavioral health and mental health and well-being issues that are being experienced not only in law enforcement, but in the population at large is really, really important. We're really proud of the work that we're doing with the NYPD through Finest Care. In fact, I I often say uh, it's one of the things I'm proudest of from my time uh, being CEO of Northwell Direct. And really the genesis of this came uh, through the NYPD. Uh, There was a recognition that they needed to provide support to their uniformed officers who, um, as you can appreciate, experience a broad range, a diverse range of stressors. Uh, It is not an easy job uh, to be a police officer today. And I think what the NYPD said is we wanna make sure our officers feel like they have the support they need and we need to do it in a way that they'll be comfortable with that protects confidentiality and that makes sure they have access to the highest quality possible providers in this space. And so they went through uh, an RFP process where there were many organizations that were asked to participate. Uh, We saw an opportunity uh, to take capabilities that we had built in the behavioral health space at Northwell and bring them to bear to support uh, the uniformed officers. We were incredibly attracted to the mission and the opportunity that we saw to make a difference. And we were thankfully selected uh, by the NYPD. And we went live uh, in July of last year. And uh, it has been an absolutely incredible, uh, absolutely collaborative partnership uh, since we launched. And you talked about the RFP process and how you're chosen how is finest care different than the way that mental health care has traditionally been delivered to the NYPD personnel? Yeah, I think uh, I'll say two things. Uh, number one, the NYPD has a, a really strong history of being invested in, caring about, and working to provide solutions around this space. Uh, they have clinical programs within the department. They have clinical leadership that are focused on behavioral health issues and have historically provided uh, services to the uniformed officers. I think what the genesis 
of finest care uh, really represented was um, their desire to do more um, and to, to provide outlets beyond what existed in the department that perhaps officers might be uh, more comfortable uh, you know, taking advantage of. And there's a variety of reasons for that, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about as we go through here. Um, but I, I would want to acknowledge that they, they have a long, rich history of investing in programs uh, to support the uniformed officers and their behavioral and mental uh, well-being. Having said that, you know, how, do, how would officers traditionally, through their insurance, access behavioral health care? much the same way that anyone else in society would access uh, behavioral health uh, through an insurance program. You know, you would you'd almost to some extent be on your own looking for who's an available provider within my network, um, who, by the way, specializes in the types of issues that I'm struggling with that is positioned actually to help me. And by the way, I've got to find out, do they even have appointments? Do they have availability? How quickly uh, can they get in, get me in to be seen? You know, there, were, there are seemingly many hurdles when you're trying to navigate that on your own. And so, you know, what I think we've done with finest care is say, let's remove that complexity. Let's remove that access barrier. Let's make this really easy for you. And we've provided a centralized single point of contact for the navigation of behavioral health services that is available 24 by 7, 365. Uh, if a uniformed officer of the NYPD picks up the phone, they will speak on our end with a licensed behavioral health provider. That provider will have a discussion with them about what they're experiencing and what they're looking to address. And based on that conversation and assessment, we'll triage the officer to the most appropriate venue of care. That could be if somebody's in an acute crisis, dispatching an ambulance to get them to uh, an inpatient facility. It could be the deployment of emergency telepsychiatry capabilities, which we have through the health system. But it could also be setting up a uh, tele or in-person appointment with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But it's all grounded in let an actual licensed provider help you determine who the right provider is to help you with your issue when you've raised your hand and said, I need help. And then the other unique thing that we've done is we've committed for the non-acute crisis scenarios we've committed that we will see any uniformed officer that makes contact with us within 48 hours. And that removes a huge access barrier because if you look at the average wait times to get in to see a behavioral health provider, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, they are far greater uh, than that. And so uh, we've really focused on trying to make access no longer a barrier to those that need and want the help. That 40 hour window is so key to your point, uh, you know, removing that access. And, you know, if an officer calls and they need help, they really need help. And you talk about the wait times, you know, we'll touch upon it now, but, you know, during the pandemic and now post pandemic, more and more people are seeking help and treatment. And some people are leaving the profession or there just aren't enough of them out there, which we know is, was the case prior to COVID and certainly is now. You know, and as we talk about the general public, you know, mental health has long been sort of a taboo topic and has had, you know, unfortunately the word stigma attached to it. Why is that? Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. Um, it is unfortunate. I, I think it's a societal issue. Um, I think we as a society have um, historically had a more difficult time wrapping our heads around and understanding somebody grappling with a behavioral health issue, right? It's, it's been, I think, historically easier for somebody to understand, oh, I'm sick, I need treatment. Oh, I've had a heart attack, the, the hospital is gonna make me better. I have a cold, I'm gonna go see my provider. I, I think um, historically society has had an easier time wrapping their head around those issues uh, because they're common, right? Everybody experiences those 
physical ailments from time to time. I think too, um, behavioral health issues weren't as well understood and as well communicated uh, to the public at large. Um, and so I think it has contributed to um, people being hesitant to say historically that they needed or wanted help uh, dealing with these issues. I mean, even, you know, if you, and I don't want to get political in the conversation, but if you just look at politics, you've had historically, if you go back 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you've had candidates who were seemingly disqualified from seeking office or winning an election, withdrawing from races after a behavioral health issue gets disclosed. You know, you contrast that now uh, with the news coverage we're seeing following, you know, John, Senator Fetterman uh, making the decision to, you know, seek inpatient care uh, for depression. Um, you just see the clear uh, contrast in how society has come to better understand, better acknowledge, better appreciate uh, and accept these issues. And so um, I, I think there's a huge societal piece here, but I also think the pandemic shone a real light on this. Uh, you know, our experience over two or three years, just as people grappling with the pandemic and its impact, um, the fact that so many more people were dealing with these issues themselves, I think it's created a greater level of societal understanding and appreciation. I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing that more people are dealing with behavioral health issues, but I think it's a great thing that there's better acknowledgement and acceptance of these issues. I've been saying those exact words you know, throughout COVID where the one positive thing to come from it is that it put a spotlight to your point on mental health. And I've been saying for about two years now that we're gonna have a mental health tsunami when we come out the other side, and that's where we are now. And, you know, talking about stigma, you know, stigma is heightened with police and military communities. You know, you've got big bad GI Joe or GI Jane or officer Joe and officer Jane. They don't want to admit that they might be having some issues. What are your thoughts on that? Why is that still a stigma, even though society as a whole, to your point, is accepting? Yeah, I think the reality is um, there are certain types of people that feel called to this type of service. Um, and, and at the end of the day, police, military, firefighters, uh, frontline clinicians, you know, these, these people are providing a public service uh, to the communities that we live in. They're saying, uh, we want to be here to serve, to help, to protect you when you're at your most vulnerable, when you're in need. And I think, um, you know, because of that, there's a, you know, innate sort of, you know, feeling or sense that I've got to be more resilient. I've got to be stronger than I've got to be able to carry on in the face of adversity because I'm here in the service of the greater public when they need help. And so, you know, I think there's an element of, you know, the, the, the personality and the type of individual who's drawn to that type of service uh, that contributes. But I also think, look, there are very real issues uh, for, you know, people in law enforcement, people in the military um, that are grappling with severe behavioral health issues, and rightfully so. Um, you know, there's concern about the fact that you know, raising your hand and, you know, saying I need help could result in uh, your firearm being taken away or being reassigned to desk duty, um, or that in some way this could be uh, viewed as a sign of weakness and thereby career limiting. Um, you know, that's not to say that any of those organizations actually intend or function that way, but it's a perception that exists uh, often within the population. And so what we've tried to do is be really sensitive to that. And I think that's been part of the benefit for the NYPD of being able to say, look, we're setting up this service 
completely outside the confines of the department. It is completely confidential. Uh, it is anonymous to the police department, uh, but we wanna make it available so that you can feel comfortable. And those issues of stigma and this feeling like it's almost anathema to your personality and character and your concern about what could happen in terms of your job and your career prospects. We can remove all of those barriers because this capability, this service sits outside of the department. And I think that's been a really smart strategic decision that the department made and a real value add in terms of how the officers have understood it. Yeah, you mentioned a moment ago about losing your gun and being put to desk duty. When you and I spoke the other day and you're talking about that, you said you go, go to desk duty and all of a sudden they lose their overtime. I think that's a real concern that there could be, you know, depending on, you know, circumstance and assignments and things like this, I think there's a concern. I mean, look, the reality is over time is a part of uh, the reality of, um, you know, the economics of being a police officer. And, um, you know, I think if you couple concern about your ability to earn and provide for your family with some of the other considerations that we know are barriers, that becomes a really powerful force and a real powerful headwind that we've got to work against in getting people comfortable. And that's why, again, I think removing, uh, I, I think, you know, providing this service through a high quality provider organization that sits outside the four walls that is well equipped to deal with any type of situation an officer could be dealing with again, was a really wise decision um, from the NYPD. Are there any statistics or do you have any anecdotal evidence on the percentage of police officers who experience post-traumatic stress? I mean, my, my own personal, you know, my, my just gut on this and there are statistics on it, but my gut is it's probably pretty prevalent. Uh, if you think about what officers deal with, uh, just the same as it's, we know it's prevalent and become more and more of an issue uh, within the military. And we know it's becoming an issue after the last couple of years with healthcare workers. I just, the nature of the work, the stressors and the challenges that officers deal with, um, you, know, it, it, you know, at a gut level alone, you have to say, gosh, it's got to be pretty prevalent. Now, if you look at organizations like the National Alliance on Mental Illness, as an example, they say it could be as high as 35%. Now, we know that, you know, PTSD and behavioral health issues at large manifest themselves in different ways at an individual level. And uh, one person's experience is uh, often different than another's, or it could be more acute or less acute than somebody else's. But that's a pretty significant number. And I think what it says is, you know, as the NYPD is, has done, you know, we need to be really thoughtful about making sure we're developing programs uh, that can support and address those issues, uh, that we communicate them in a way that will alleviate the concerns of uh, an individual that may be thinking about saying, hey, I need help. Um, and then three, we better make damn sure that we deliver because these people, as I said, um, sign up to be in service to us when we're in our time of need. We need to make sure that we're doing all we can to deliver in their time of need. You mentioned the 35% stat about you know officers having uh, mental health or behavioral health issues. I was speaking with a clinician in the first responder space a few days ago, and she said, everyone has a bad day, but police officers see everyone's bad day mm -hmm. every day. And that really just stuck with me because, you know, I think of them as, you know, managing the construction site down the road and complaining about the traffic that's there or, you know, speeding tickets and all that stuff. But it's, that's the easy part of the job. It's going in and dealing, you know, someone who committed suicide or a homicide or a drug overdose, anything like that. And so me as a layperson, as a private citizen, just, I guess, just took it for granted. No, I mean, I, I think it's an excellent point. I, I mean, it, it is a, it's a tough job, you know, and you think about what's happening. Um, you know, all it takes is watching the news, reading the newspaper and looking at, 
you know, rising violent crime rates uh, in major metropolitan areas. I mean, you can talk about all the, you know, the things that have, have caused that to be, but the reality is crime is on the rise. More and more people are concerned about that. So you're right to that point. Um, you know, these offices are, are seeing and being exposed to and having to deal with, uh, you know, things on a daily basis that probably almost feel like a barrage you also think about the fact that, you know, think about the behavioral health issues that police officers are encountering, uh, encountering in their work every day. Um, think about the fact that they're playing, they're being forced to play social work, uh, almost pseudo roles uh, in their day to day with uh, homeless populations that are on the rise, with people that are dealing with behavioral health and drug issues. I mean, it is the complexity and the extent of what these officers see, uh, I think to your point is absolutely spot on. Police officers are not only vulnerable to mental health issues like post-traumatic stress, but they often suffer physical injuries in their work. Can a physical injury affect our mental health? You know, one of the things about, um, you know, if you look at the behavioral health space uh, for a second, if you zoom out, and, and look at the market, the behavioral health space is an area where um, new entrants and alternative channels have become increasingly popular over the last year, right? How many startup behavioral health companies with a behavioral health point solution have emerged? I think the last stat I saw was somewhere between two and $3 billion of investment by private equity companies in behavioral health startups over the last several years. The thing that I, I think about as it relates to the services that we offer from a behavioral health perspective is that what's different is, yes, we will, we will help you address um, you know, whatever specific behavioral health issue, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, PTSD, whatever it may be, but we'll also think about you as a whole person. And our services are integrated into a broader delivery system that can wrap itself around you and say, hey, if your behavioral health issue is being exacerbated by a clinical issue that you have, well, let's help you take care of that issue and we can get you navigated to and handle providing clinical services for that. And I don't see these other um, behavioral health point solutions being able to offer that. And I almost view it as a disservice to the individuals that sign up. I think we have to realize that uh, these issues are often interrelated um, and integrated health systems are better positioned to help to address whole person health, which includes behavioral health. 9-11 was more than 21 years ago. Obviously, a lot of NYPD police officers and first responders have retired since that awful day. And the work that you've done through Finest Care, does the NYPD in general, or individual officers in particular, still feel the effects of 9-11? You know, I... I would say the only answer I could give to that is absolutely. Um, it's hard to live in New York, especially if you were here on that day. Uh, but it's hard to live in New York and not, you know, be reminded of, be cognizant of, be thoughtful about 9-11. And I think the impact is very real. Um, certainly you have individuals uh, that are, you know, have... PTSD and other related issues from their own individual experience and what they saw and what they went through. You also have people who are becoming physically ill as a result of their work in the recovery process. Um, you know, I, I myself lost a family member last year to 9-11 related cancer. He was a detective uh, in the NYPD. And I think the, pol the broader police community still sees the effect of 9-11 uh, every day because of that. And so I think it's very real. And I think um, like all of the other stressors and circumstances that police officers feel, 
it's something that, um, you know, can cause people to have issues and need to seek out help. And that's what we're well positioned to provide. You know, I've mentioned the show several times that I was at Ground Zero 9-11 and throughout most of my career worked within three to five blocks of Ground Zero. It took me 17 years, first of all, to self-diagnose myself with PTSD hmm. and 17 years to go back to Ground Zero. Right. And so that was me on my own choice, my own timeline. These first responders who I saw rushing into these towers that were on fire and collapsing, risking their lives because that was their job and that's what they signed up for. They didn't have the luxury of 17 years like I did to go back on their timeline and kind of work through it. They were back on the beat the next day. They were pulling remains out you know, for days and weeks and months afterwards. And so uh, I appreciate all that you're doing with them and for them. And so just thank you for that. Heroes. Amen. We've been talking to Nick Stefanizzi, and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Nick Stefanizzi. We've been talking about a mental health collaboration involving his employer, Northwell Direct, and the New York City Police Department. Nick is the CEO of Northwell Direct, New York State's largest nonprofit healthcare provider and private employer, where he was responsible for the strategy, operations, growth, and financial performance of Northwell Health's direct-to-employer organization. Nick, let's shift gears for a moment. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you earned a bachelor's degree in international relations. What drew you that major? And is there any connection at all to your studies in international relations and your work in healthcare? So what drew me to that major? Um, I loved history uh, as a uh, student, uh, was always drawn to history, appreciated the lessons uh, from history and thinking about how you can draw on them to inform uh, what you do and where we're going in the future. Um, and I was also a not-so-closeted Model UN nerd uh, in <laughs> high school. Um, and so when thinking about my uh, college major, without really having a sense of exactly what I wanted to do in my career, um, you know, I thought about, um, you know, international relations as being a nice blend of those two interests. And Boston University, where I had the pleasure of doing my undergrad, had an 
excellent uh, international relations uh, program. And, um, you know, it, it ended up, in my view, um, one, BU is a great school. I'm a huge BU fan and supporter, uh, not just because of their awesome hockey team, but um, uh, really feel like I got a really strong, uh, solid education and really found that the international relations program there, in addition to the subject matter, also really focused on a couple of core uh, call it competencies, communication, writing, collaboration, um, all of which I think are directly related to the work that we do uh, within healthcare. And I didn't know or expect necessarily that my career would end up uh, in healthcare, um, but it does feel like it has the complexity sometimes of international relations. And it is definitely a team sport. And when I think about, you know, teams, uh, the best uh, teams that I've been a part of have always been collaborative and communicative um, and aligned in direction. And, um, you know, those are certainly skills that I think I got to learn in addition to, you know, sort of the specific subject matter that you study. So I know you're based in New York. You went to school in Boston. You went to Hofstra. You're a big BU supporter. I, I can respect that. Everyone knows I'm, I'm Syracuse undergrad grad, so I always promote my school. Yankees or Red Sox? <laughs> Yankees. All right. <laughs> and stay on the show. We're good to go then. That's always the make or break question for me. So Nick, there's a shortage of healthcare professionals in this country, as you talked about earlier, and it's expected to get worse as our population ages and requires more care. What do we need to do to get more people interested in healthcare careers? And what do we need to do to retain the people already in that profession? Yeah, I mean, this is a real challenge that healthcare organizations around the country are grappling with. I think um, this is an example we talked about a little bit in our last conversation. This is another example to me of a yes end problem. It is a, it is a multifaceted problem that requires um, a really broad range of solutions, not a solution. So I think um, we've got to start getting people interested in healthcare as a career and a profession earlier. Um, you know, Northwell is doing a lot to get out into schools and to start to create pipelines of young scholars. Um, and I think we have to help uh, younger people thinking about entering the workforce understand that there are many other ways outside of being a physician or a nurse uh, that you can have a career in healthcare. You know, you can be an IT professional who has a career that specializes in healthcare. You can be a finance person who has a career in healthcare. And I think um, helping people see and understand that uh, and then creating pathways around it is really, really important. I think um, we've got to be recruiting in more innovative ways. And so, uh, you know, at Northwell, particularly as it relates to nursing, um, we've created uh, partnerships and relationships with uh, nursing schools around the country. Uh, we hold uh, what they call golden ticket events that expedite uh, the hiring process for nurses. Um, and so we've got to look for innovative, unique ways to hire people and get them in. And you've got to onboard them, help them orient um, and get settled in their roles in a way that they feel supported. You can't just throw somebody on the floor. Um, it would be number one, terribly unsafe. And number two, uh, you would not set that individual up for success or a good experience. And so we've been really thoughtful about how do we make sure our clinical professionals, as they onboard into the organization, are, uh, are well supported, well cared for, um, and have an opportunity to really settle into uh, their roles. And then, you know, there's a whole range of things outside of just clinicians there's a whole range of things that we need to be doing to make sure that we're retaining our workforce, you know, um, really focusing on listening and supporting employees, driving engagement, helping people see and understand what they need to do to grow their careers, and then giving them the tools and resources 
to grow their careers and be successful. You know, there's in any event, I, the, the point being, I, I think it's a yes and answer to, you know, what we need to do to address this critical shortage. Well, I was interested when you just mentioned about different sort of backgrounds you could have in healthcare, IT, finance, you mentioned the number of people I'm seeing now with a combined MBA and MPH mm-hmm. is, is skyrocketing. So they seem to be going more and more hand in hand to your point as the self-care profession expands its, its reach and, and breadth of scope. I think so. And I think, I mean, certainly <laughs> public health has been at the forefront the last couple of years. I think that trend probably even started a little bit prior to um, the pandemic. Look, I think there's an acknowledgement and whether it's the traditional definition of public health or not, there's an acknowledgement that we have to do more than just take care of people when they're sick. And I think this is something that Northwell is really focused on. And that's how do we get upstream? How do we uh, address the social determinants of health, whether that's uh, food insecurity, whether it's gun violence, which by the way, is now uh, the leading cause of death of children. That's a disturbing statistic. Um, whether it's uh, the work that's being done around environmental sustainability to address climate change and the impact that it has on health. You know, I think the realization that there are these social determinants that impact individuals' health um, has probably helped to generate some of that interest in the public health field in a way um, that may not have existed uh, years ago. Forbes magazine reported in December that the amount of healthcare business conducted through retail outlets will double during 2023 as retailers like Walmart, Amazon, and CVS offer healthcare services such as blood tests, vaccinations, and medical checkups that have traditionally been delivered by hospitals, clinics, or doctor's practices. Is that a good trend, a bad trend, or one of those yes and? (laughs) Well, I think on the one hand, uh, the idea of um, creating more access to care, particularly in areas, I mean, look, there are places in this country where access to healthcare and access to providers is limited. So the notion of creating new and additional access points, um, I think is a fundamentally good premise like we were talking about with behavioral and mental health earlier, I think it's important that those access points are integrated into a broader delivery system so you don't further fragment care. I also don't think, and this is my opinion, you know, people talk about healthcare being broken and we, look, I think we all acknowledge that healthcare can and should do better, be better, Um, in this country. We should address cost, quality, et cetera. But I don't think the answer is necessarily um, coming from outside uh, of industry, that somebody else is coming to save us. I believe uh, fundamentally that um, providers have to lead the charge on innovation and addressing uh, the challenges we experience in healthcare and addressing the opportunities for transformation. That's what we're really focused on, you know, within Northwell Direct, you know, and and I'll just mention the insurance space. You know, we believe there's an opportunity uh, to fundamentally transform in this country how healthcare is organized and paid for, that we can cut out the middlemen insurance carriers, work directly between providers and employers and create a national provider-based alternative to the traditional insurance carriers. Um, That to me is provider-based innovation uh, and provider-based solution to a problem we all know exists, and that is the cost of care. So to to summarize, access is a good thing. I think um, uh, access needs to be integrated, and I believe providers need to drive uh, the innovation and the solutions. You mentioned innovation there a handful of times, and let's talk about another type of innovation. Wearable devices are being used more and more often to track patients' health and monitor them remotely. My listeners know I'm a huge Apple junkie and I have to have the newest Apple watch because I get my rings and my steps and all that. 
Is there a place for wearable devices in the mental health arena too, or is that something that's just more science fiction? You know, I don't, I don't know if I call it science fiction. Um, let me comment generally about wearables, um, and maybe this will help answer the question. But it, it is along the theme of integration that we've talked about. You know, I think the notion of empowering individuals with line of sight into their data um, and information about their health is fundamentally a good thing uh, because it will allow people uh, to be empowered, to take control and to be an active participant in their health. So from that perspective, I think it's a really positive thing. I think where I'd love to see wearables go, regardless of what uh, clinical area of focus, is how do we also integrate the information available from the wearables? And by the way, it's got to be scientifically validated, appropriate information coming from these wearables. How do we integrate that with the insights and the data that are available through your interaction with your provider? and the diagnostic tests that are being done. How do we incorporate that data in a way that it's usable by our providers? And that by the way, doesn't create uh, more of a data burden for providers. Uh, because let's also recognize that, um, you know, what providers experience every day in caring for their patients and uh, using the tools that we've put in place in, in EMRs, um, it's not easy. And they're often uh, faced with an avalanche of data. So I think, you know, the notion of individuals having um, line of sight into data through wearables is great. I believe it will be empowering. I think we've got to figure out how do we, how do we integrate uh, that data with your broader clinical data set? And how do we make it easy for the providers to action against that data in consultation and collaboration with all of the other clinical data sets that they have available to them. But I think there's promise. I love your vision and I completely agree with in terms of like how you think it should all be connected. My only fear is you're seeing more and more articles now about these mental health app companies, technology companies selling your data. Mm. And so I just feel that there could be just a little bit slower for people to get into it, just knowing the privacy issues and again, stigma associated with that. but. I love the vision you're putting out there for all of us. You got to read the fine print. Exactly. Exactly. Have your lawyer sign off for you. U.S. healthcare spending grew 2.7% in 2021, which are the latest numbers we have. It reached $4.3 trillion with a T dollars or $12,914 per person. That's 18.3% of our country's gross domestic product. And that's nearly twice as much as any other developed country. I have four questions for you. It's going to be a little weird. They're all going to sound the same, but they're all different. Let's take them one by (laughs) (laughs) Trust the process. So let's just take them one by one. What can hospitals and hospital networks do to help make healthcare more accessible, more transparent, more efficient, and more affordable? There's a lot of mores in there. Partner with us. (laughs) Um, Join the fight. No, I'm serious. I think provider organizations have uh, a huge opportunity um, to help to drive down costs. You know, we've put out a high-performing network uh, that we offer to self-funded employers uh, to support their team member benefits. We see on average that that solution uh, can save them 20% on their benefit expense. In this inflationary, economically uncertain environment, I think there's a real opportunity here for us to say, we can be working together. Because by the way, providers and employee employers are part of the same community. So let's work together. And you know, we've created a structure where um, we partner with and we work with other health systems. My network includes uh, people who in the more traditional sense were competitors uh, locally. But we've realized that in support of employers and their team members, we have an ability to collaborate in a way that's different, provide an alternative to the traditional insurance companies. And I think provider organizations around the country have this same ability. 
this direct relationship, direct provision of care um, can not only save money, but it'll also improve quality because you can better organize all of the care that an individual needs. And what can the people who set our public policy do to help make healthcare more accessible, more transparent, more efficient, and more affordable? You know, I think one of the things that's missing in our public policy discussion about the healthcare system and healthcare economics is nuance. You know, it seems to me that the public policy debate is, you know, on the one hand, you know, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare is either the best thing or the worst thing that's happened to the country. And that's one part of the debate. And the other part of the debate is uh, we should either have or should not have Medicare for all. <laughs> to me, that misses uh, an incredible amount of nuance in terms of how healthcare financing is actually structured. And if you think about it, 160 million people in this country have access to health insurance through an employer-sponsored plan. This is, in my view, an evolution, not a revolution country. I don't believe uh, that we will be able to flip a switch and say, we're moving all those people off of their employer-sponsored plans and we're moving them to Medicare for all. I just don't uh, see a tolerance for that, particularly when you reflect back uh, and look at the battle over the Affordable Care Act uh, when it wasn't even anything close to that uh, as a policy intervention. But what I think we can do to have an impact is say 160 million people. That's a lot of people. How do we, how do we then address, how can we transform how employers provide that benefit? And I think direct employer-provider relationships like we're building through Northwell uh, cutting out the insurance middlemen, who, by the way, are not adding a lot of value to the system. They're pulling a lot of money out of it and handing it over to their shareholders, but they're not adding a lot of value to the equation of how an employer provides care for their team members. So I believe uh, the public policy debate needs to acknowledge that this is a much more nuanced problem than those seemingly binary choices and focus on the 160 million people uh, that have employer-sponsored coverage and what opportunities we have to innovate within that construct. We were talking before the podcast about the Northwell Network and its margins. Mm. I know I was surprised, and I think a lot of people will be surprised by the numbers you were sharing with me. And I'd like you to share them with our audience, please. Yeah, so Northwell Health um, the parent company of Northwell Direct is an integrated delivery system, not for profit, uh, is important here in New York. Uh, it is a $17 billion uh, in top line revenue company. We function, we operate on 1% margin against that $17 billion in revenue. And that is because of the investments we're making in innovating for employers, the investments we're making in providing behavioral health services uh, to the community where other health systems and other providers are retreating. It's because we're investing in getting into the communities and addressing social determinants. It's because we need to invest to maintain the physical plant of all the facilities uh, that people go to for their care, to, to keep up with the latest advances in technology, to be on the leading edge of uh, cutting edge re uh, research uh, and clinical trials. You know, we reinvest all that we make back into the health system and the communities that we serve. As a not-for-profit, we don't have shareholders that are getting a dividend or a return uh, from the money that we make. And at the end of the day, there's 1% margin on our business, all of which goes back into the community. And if you contrast that, the numbers aren't difficult to find, but if you contrast that to the margins and the profits um, that are being made in the insurance side, uh, the margins that are, and then the profits that are being made in the pharmacy side, um, it's quite a stark contrast. And I'd ask you, who is really making the investments in the communities uh, that we all live in? And, and I believe it's providers. And are you unique in that situation in terms of being a nonprofit in the healthcare space in terms of your structure? Are there others similar? 
you don't have to, uh, you know, don't have to name names. Yeah. I mean, you know, it varies by state and geography. Uh, New York is a state that doesn't allow uh, for-profit hospitals and hospital systems. Um, there are others that do, and there's a mix of for-profit, not-for-profit hospitals, health systems, integrated systems around uh, the country. So it really depends on the geography. Um, but I would say, I mean, you look at Becker's, which is one of the most common uh, industry publications. Um, seemingly every day, every week, there's another post about hospitals that lost money uh, in 2022 uh, and uh, hospitals that are you know, struggling to survive on really, really thin margins. Not all that dissimilar from the one that we've experienced. We've already had a fascinating conversation today, but we still have a few minutes left. Talk to us about the things in the mental health field that give you the most hope and optimism. I think the thing that gives me the most hope in the mental health, behavioral health space is the shift that we're seeing in terms of society's appreciation for understanding of, um, of these issues and comfort with people raising their hand and willingness to try to answer the call. Um, I think that that's really healthy. I think that it's really important. And um, I'm glad to see that shift happening. I'm glad to see the reception that a Senator Fetterman is getting uh, for, for taking the step that he did that again, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, would have caused him to, to be ostracized. Um, I think that's a really positive thing. And I, you know, I'm also encouraged by employers, uh, who are saying we need to focus on this, you know, this is what we need to be doing and providing for our team members who we ask to do a lot for us. Um, I think the fact that, you know, companies are looking at health, wellness, behavioral health as key areas for them to support their employees is a really, really positive thing as well. Nick Stefanisi, CEO of Northwell Direct. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And last question, where can our listeners learn more about Finest Care? Uh, you can learn uh, more about Finest Care by uh, going to the Northwell Direct website. Uh, you can check out some of the other uh, press and um, uh, publications we've done on this and um, really just encourage everybody to uh, support and encourage uh, those in law enforcement, those in frontline uh, essential jobs beyond law enforcement, uh, encourage them if they need the help, raise their hands uh, and seek it out. We're out of time. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.